Chapter 2 of Lord Tony's Wife. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Dion Gines. Lord Tony's Wife by Emuska Orsky. Chapter 2 The Bottom Inn. Part 1. A man was sitting huddled up in the ingle nook of the small coffee room, sipping hot ale from a tankard which he had in his hand. Anything less suggestive of a rough seafaring life than his appearance it would be difficult to conceive, and how he came by the appellation the captain must forever remain a mystery. He was small and spare, with thin delicate face and slender hands. Though dressed in very rough garments, he was obviously ill at ease in them. His narrow shoulders scarcely appeared able to bear the weight of the coarsely made coat, and his thin legs did not begin to fill the big fisherman's boots which reached midway up his lean thighs his hair was lank and plentifully sprinkled with grey he wore it tied at the nape of the neck with a silk bow which certainly did not harmonize with the rest of his clothing a wide-brimmed felt hat something the shape of a sailor's but with higher crown of the shape worn by the peasantry in brittany lay on the bench beside him when the stranger entered he had greeted him curtly speaking in french the room was inexpressibly stuffy and reeked of the fumes of stale tobacco stale victuals and stale beer but it was warm and the stranger stiff to the marrow and wet to the skin uttered an exclamation of well-being as he turned to the hearth wherein a bright fire burned cheerily he had put his hat down when first he entered and had divested himself of his big coat now he held one foot and then the other to the blaze and tried to infuse new life into his numbed hands the captain took scant notice of his comings and goings he did not attempt to help him off with his coat nor did he make an effort to add another log to the fire he sat silent and practically motionless save when from time to time he took a sip out of his mug of ale but whenever the newcomer came within his immediate circle of vision he shot a glance at the latter's elegant attire the well-cut coat the striped waistcoat the boots of fine leather the glance was quick and comprehensive and full of scorn a flash that lasted only an instant and was at once veiled again by the droop of the flaccid lids which hid the pale keen eyes when the woman has brought me something to eat and drink the stranger said after a while we can talk i have a good hour to spare as those miserable nags must have some rest he too spoke in french and with an air of authority not to say arrogance which caused the captain's glance of scorn to light up with an added gleam of hate and almost of cruelty but he made no remark and continued to sip his ale in silence and for the next half-hour the two men took no more notice of one another just as if they had never travelled all those miles and come to this desolate spot for the sole purpose of speaking with one another during the course of that half-hour the woman brought in a dish of mutton stew a chunk of bread a piece of cheese and a jug of spiced ale and placed them on the table all of these good things the stranger consumed with an obviously keen appetite when he had eaten and drunk his fill, he rose from the table, drew a bench into the ingle-nook, and sat down so that his profile only was visible to his friend, the captain. "'Now, citizen Badet Chauvelin,' he said with an attempt at ease and familiarity not unmixed with condescension, "'I am ready for your news.'" Part Two, 
Chauvelin had winced perceptibly both at the condescension and the familiarity. It was such a very little while ago that men had trembled at a look, a word from him. His silence had been wont to strike terror in quaking hearts. It was such a very little while ago that he had been president of the Committee of Public Safety, all-powerful, the right hand of citizen Robespierre, the master sleuth-hound who could track an unfortunate suspect down to his most hidden lair, before whose keen, pale eyes the innermost secrets of his soul stood revealed, who guessed at treason ere it was wholly born, who scented treachery ere it was formulated. A year ago he had with a word sent scores of men, women, and children to the guillotine. He had with a sign brought the whole machinery of the ruthless committee to work against innocent or guilty alike on mere suspicion, or to gratify his own hatred against all those whom he considered to be the enemies of that bloody revolution which he had helped to make. Now his presence, his silence, had not even the power to ruffle the self-assurance of an upstart. But in the hard school both of success and of failure through which he had passed during that last decade, there was one lesson which Armand, once Marquis de Chauvelin, had learned to the last letter, and that was the lesson of self-control. He had winced at the other's familiarity, but neither by word nor gesture did he betray what he felt. I can tell you, he merely said quite curtly, all I have to say in far less time than it has taken you to eat and drink citizen Adé. But suddenly, at sound of that name, the other had put a warning hand on Chauvelin's arm, even as he cast a rapid, anxious look all around the narrow room. "'Hush, man!' he murmured hurriedly. "'You know quite well that that name must never be pronounced here in England. I am Martin Roger now,' he added, as he shook off his momentary fright with equal suddenness and once more resumed his tone of easy condescension, and try not to forget it. Chauvelin, without any haste, quietly freed his arm from the other's grasp. His pale face was quite expressionless, only the thin lips were drawn tightly over the teeth now, and a curious hissing sound escaped faintly from them as he said, I'll try and remember, citizen, that here in England you are an aristo, the same as all these confounded English whom may the devil sweep into a bottomless sea. Martin Roger gave a short, complacent laugh. Ah, he said lightly, no wonder you hate them, citizen Chauvelin. You too were an aristo here in England once, not so very long ago, I am thinking. Special envoy to His Majesty King George, what? Until failure to bring one of those satani Britishers to book made you, er, well made you what you are now he drew up his tall broad figure as he spoke and squared his massive shoulders as he looked down with a fatuous smile and no small measure of scorn on the hunched-up little figure beside him it had seemed to him that something in the nature of a threat had crept into chauvelin's attitude and he still flushed with his own importance his immeasurable belief in himself at once chose to measure his strength against this man who was the personification of failure and disgrace this man whom so many people had feared for so long and whom it might not be wise to defy even now no offence meant citizen chauvelin he added with an air of patronage which once more made the other wince i had no wish to wound your susceptibilities 
I only desired to give you timely warning that what I do here is no one's concern, and that I will brook interference and criticism from no man. And Chauvelin, who in the past had oft with a nod sent a man to the guillotine, made no reply to this arrogant taunt. His small figure seemed to shrink still further within itself, and anon he passed his thin claw-like hand over his face, as if to obliterate from its surface any expression which might war with the utter humility wherewith he now spoke. Nor was there any offence meant on my part, citizen Martin Roger, he said suavely. Do we not both labour for the same end, the glory of the Republic, and the destruction of her foes? Martin Roger gave a sigh of satisfaction. The battle had been won. He felt himself strong again, stronger than before, through that very act of deference paid to him by the once all-powerful Chauvelin. Now he was quite prepared to be condescending and jovial once again. Of course, of course, he said pleasantly, as he once more bent his tall figure to the fire. We are both servants of the Republic, and I may yet help you to retrieve your past failures, citizen, by giving you an active part in the work I have in hand. And now, he added in a calm, business-like manner, the manner of a master addressing a servant who has been found at fault and is taken into favor again, let me hear your news. I have made all the arrangements about the ship, said Chauvelin quietly. Ah, that is good news indeed. What is she? She is a Dutch ship. Her master and crew are all Dutch. That's a pity. A Danish master and crew would have been safer. I could not come across any Danish ship willing to take the risks, said Chauvelin dryly. Well, and what about this Dutch ship, then? She is called the Hollandia, and is habitually engaged in the sugar trade. But her master does a lot of contraband. More that than fair trading, I imagine. Anyway, he is willing for the sum you originally named to take every risk, and incidentally to hold his tongue about the whole business. For two thousand francs? Yes. And he will run the Hollandia into Curacic when you command. And there is suitable accommodation on board her for a lady and her woman? I don't know what you call suitable, said Chauvelin, with a sarcastic tone, which the other failed or was unwilling to note, and I don't know what you call a lady. The accommodation available on board the Hollandia will be sufficient for two men and two women. And her master's name, queried Martin Roger? Some outlandish Dutch name, replied Chauvelin. It is spelt K-U-Y-P-E-R. The devil only knows how it is pronounced. Well, and does Captain K-U-Y-P-E-R understand exactly what I want? He says he does. The Hollandia will put into Portishead on the last day of this month. You and your guest can get aboard her any day after that you choose. She will be there at your disposal and can start within an hour of your getting aboard. Her master will have all his papers ready. He will have a cargo of West Indian sugar on board, destination Amsterdam, consignee Mynheer van Smeer, everything perfectly straight and square, French aristos emigres on board on their way to join the army of the princes. There will be no difficulty in England, and none in Curacic. The man is running no risks. He thinks he is. France does not make Dutch ships and Dutch crews exactly welcome just now, does she? Certainly not. But in Le Curacic, and with citizen Adé on board, I thought that name was not to be mentioned here, retorted Chauvelin dryly. 
you are right, citizen," whispered the other. "It escaped me, and...." Already he had jumped to his feet, his face suddenly pale, his whole manner changed from easy, arrogant self-assurance to uncertainty and obvious dread. He moved to the window, trying to subdue the sound of his footsteps upon the uneven floor. Part Three. "'Are you afraid of eavesdroppers, Citizen Roger?' queried Chauvelin, with a shrug of his narrow shoulders. "'No, there is no one there, only a lout from Shellwood who brought me here. The people of the house are safe enough. They have plenty of secrets of their own to keep.' He was obviously saying all this in order to reassure himself, for there was no doubt that his fears were on the alert. With a febrile gesture he unfastened the shutters and pushed them open, peering out into the night. Hello, he called, but he received no answer. It has started to rain, he said more calmly. I imagine that lout has found shelter in an outhouse with the horses. Very likely, commented Chauvelin laconically. Then if you have nothing more to tell me, quoth Martin Roger, I may as well think about getting back. Rain or no rain, I want to be in Bath before midnight. Ball or supper party at one of your duchesses, queried the other with a sneer. I know them. To this Martin Roger vouchsafed no reply. How are things at Nanay? he asked. Splendid. Carrier is like a wild beast let loose. The prisons are overfull. The surplus of accused, condemned, and suspect fill the cellars and warehouses along the wharf. Priests and such-like trash are kept on disused galio upstream. The guillotine is never idle, and friend Carrier, fearing that she might give out, get tired, what? or break down, has invented a wonderful way of getting rid of shoals of undesirable people at one magnificent swoop. You have heard tell of it, no doubt. Yes, I have heard of it, remarked the other curtly. He began with a load of priests, requisitioned an old barge, ordered Badet the shipbuilder to construct half a dozen portholes in her bottom. Badet demurred. He could not understand what the order could possibly mean but foucault and lamberty carrier's agents you know them explained that the barge would be towed down the nane and then up one of the smaller navigable streams which it was feared the royalists were preparing to use as a way for making a descent upon nane and that the idea was to sink the barge in midstream in order to obstruct the passage of their army badet satisfied put five of his men to the task everything was ready on the sixteenth of last month i know the woman pichot who keeps a small tavern opposite la sacheray she saw the barge glide up the river toward the galio where twenty-five priests of the diocese of nanay had been living for the past two months in the company of rats and other vermin as noxious as themselves most lovely moonlight there was that night the loire looked like a living ribbon of silver Foucault and Lamberty directed operations, and Carrier had given them full instructions. They tied the calatins up two and two and transferred them from the galio to the barge. It seems they were quite pleased to go. Had enough of the rats, I presume. The only thing they didn't like was being searched. Some had managed to secret silver ornaments about their person when they were arrested, crucifixes and such like. They didn't like to part with these, it seems, but Foucault and Lamberty relieved them of everything but the necessary clothing, and they didn't want much of that, seeing whither they were going. Foucault made a good pile, so they say. Self-seeking, avaricious brute. He'll learn the way to one of Carrier's barges, too, one day, I'll bet. He rose and with quick footsteps moved to the table. 
There was some ale left in the jug which the woman had brought for Martin Roget a while ago. Chauvelin poured the contents of it down his throat. He had talked uninterruptedly in short jerky sentences without the slightest expression of horror at the atrocities which he recounted. His whole appearance had become transfigured while he spoke. Gone was the urbane manner which he had learnt at courts long ago. Gone was the last instinct of the gentleman sunk to proletarianism through stress of circumstances, or financial straits, or even political convictions. The erstwhile Marquis de Chauvelin, envoy of the Republic at the court of St. James, had become citizen Chauvelin, indeed and in fact. A part of that rabble which he had elected to serve, one of that vile crowd of bloodthirsty revolutionaries who had sullied the pure robes of liberty and of fraternity by spattering them with blood. Now he smacked his lips, wiped his mouth with his sleeve, and burying his hands in the pockets of his breeches, he stood with legs wide apart, and a look of savage satisfaction settled upon his pale face. Martin Roget had made no comment upon the narrative. He had resumed his seat by the fire, and was listening attentively. Now, while the other drank and paused, he showed no sign of impatience, but there was something in the look of the bent shoulders, in the rigidity of the attitude, in the large square hands tightly clasped together, which suggested the deepest interest and an intentness that was almost painful. I was at the woman Pichot's tavern that night, resumed Chauvelin, after a while. I saw the barge, a moving coffin, what? Gliding downstream, towed by the galio, and escorted by a small boat. The floating battery at La Samaritaine challenged her as she passed, for Carrier had prohibited all navigation up or down the Loire until further notice. Foucault, Lamberty, Fouquet, and O'Sullivan, the armorer, were in the boat. They rode up to the pontoon, and Valet, the chief gunner of the battery, challenged them once more. However, they had some sort of written authorization from Carrier, for they were allowed to pass. Valet remained on guard. He saw the barge glide further downstream. It seems that the moon on that time was hidden by a cloud, but the night was not dark, and Valet watched the barge till she was out of sight. She was towed past Trentemaux and Chantenay into the wide reach of the river just below Chevere, where, as you know, the Loire is nearly two thousand feet wide. Once more he paused, looking down with grim amusement at the bent shoulders of the other man. Well? Chauvelin laughed. The query sounded choked and hoarse, whether through horror, excitement, or mere impatient curiosity, it were impossible to say. Well, he retorted with a careless shrug of the shoulders, I was too far upstream to see anything, and Valet saw nothing either, but he heard, so did others who happened to be on the shore close by. What did they hear? The hammering, replied Chauvelin curtly, when the portholes were knocked open to let in the flood of water and the screams and yells of five-and-twenty drowning priests. Not one of them escaped, I suppose. Not one. Once more Chauvelin laughed. He had a way of laughing, just like that, in a peculiar, mirthless, derisive manner, as if with joy at another man's discomfiture, at another's material or moral downfall. There is only one language in the world which has a word to express that type of mirth. The word is schadenfreude. It was Chauvelin's turn to triumph now. He had distinctly perceived the signs of an inward shudder which had gone right through Martin Roget's spine. 
He had also perceived through the man's bent shoulders, his silence, his rigidity, that his soul was filled with horror at the story of that abominable crime which he, Chauvelin, had so blandly retailed, and that he was afraid to show the horror which he felt. And the man who is afraid can never climb the ladder of success above the man who is fearless. Part Four. There was silence in the low raftered room for a while silence only broken by the crackling and sizzling of damp logs in the hearth and the tap-tapping of a loosely fastened shutter which sounded weird and ghoulish like the knocking of ghosts against the window-frame martin roget bending still closer to the fire knew that chauvelin was watching him and that chauvelin had triumphed for despite humiliation and disgrace that man's heart and will had never softened he had remained as merciless as fanatical as before and still looked upon every sign of pity and humanity for a victim of that bloody revolution which was his child the thing of his creation yet worshipped by him its creator as a crime against patriotism and against the republic and martin roget fought within himself lest something he might say or do a look a gesture should give the other man an indication that the horrible account of a hideous crime perpetrated against twenty-five defenceless men had roused a feeling of unspeakable horror in his heart that was the punishment of these callous makers of a ruthless revolution that was their hell upon earth that they were doomed to hate and to fear one another every man feeling that the other's hand was up against him as it had been against law and order against the guilty and the innocent the rebel and the defenceless every man knowing that the other was always there on the alert ready to pounce like a beast of prey upon any victim friend comrade brother who came within reach of his hand like many men stronger than himself pierre Adet, or martin roger as he now called himself had been drawn into the vortex of bloodshed and of tyranny out of which now he no longer had the power to extricate himself nor had he any wish to extricate himself he had too many past wrongs to avenge too much injustice on the part of fate and circumstance to make good to wish to draw back now that a newly found power had been placed in the hands of men such as he through the revolt of an entire people the sickening sense of horror which a moment ago had caused him to shudder and to turn away in loathing from chauvelin was only like the feeble flicker of a light before it wholly dies down the light of something purer early lessons of childhood former ideals early aspirations now smothered beneath the passions of revenge and of hate and he would not give chauvelin the satisfaction of seeing him whence he was himself ashamed of his own weakness he had deliberately thrown in his lot with these men and he was determined not to fall a victim to their denunciations and to their jealousies so now he made a great effort to pull himself together to bring back before his mind those memory pictures of past tyranny and oppression which had effectually killed all the sense of pity in his heart and it was in a tone of perfect indifference which gave no loophole to chauvelin's sneers that he answered after a while and was citizen carrier altogether pleased with the result of his patriotic efforts oh quite replied the other he has no one's orders to take he is proconsul virtual dictator in ninah and he has vowed that he will purge the city from all save its most deserving citizens the cargo of priests was followed by one of malefactors nightbirds cutthroats and such like that is where carrier's patriotism shines out in all its glory it is not only priests and aristos you see 
other miscreants are treated with equal fairness. Ah, I see he is quite impartial, remarked Martin Roget coolly. Quite, retorted Chauvelin, as he once more sat down in the inglenook, and, leaning his elbows upon his knees, he looked straight and deliberately into the other man's face, and added slowly, You will have no cause to complain of Carrier's want of patriotism when you hand over your bag of birds to him. This time Martin Roget had obviously winced, and Chauvelin had the satisfaction of seeing that his thrust had gone home. Though Martin Roget's face was in shadow, there was something now in his whole attitude, in the clasping and unclasping of his large square hands, which indicated that the man was laboring under the stress of a violent emotion. In spite of this, he managed to say quite coolly, "'What do you mean exactly by that, citizen Chauvelin?' "'Oh,' replied the other, "'you know well enough what I mean. I am no fool, what? Or the revolution would have no use for me.' if after my many failures she still commands my services and employs me to keep my eyes and ears open it is because she knows that she can count on me i do keep my eyes and ears open citizen Adé or martin roger whatever you like to call yourself and also my mind and i have a way of putting two and two together to make four there are few people in nanay who do not know the old jean Adé the miller who was hanged four years ago because his son Pierre had taken part in some kind of open revolt against the tyranny of the ci-devant duc de Kernogan, and was not there to take his punishment himself. I knew old Jean Adé. I was on the Place des Buffets at Nina when he was hanged, but already Martin Roger had jumped to his feet with a muttered blasphemy. "'Have done, man,' he said roughly. "'Have done!' and he started pacing up and down the narrow room like a caged panther, snarling and showing his teeth, whilst his rough, toil-worn hands quivered with the desire to clutch an unseen enemy by the throat and to squeeze the life out of him. Think you, he added hoarsely, that I need reminding of that? No, I do not think that, citizen, replied Chauvelin calmly. I only desired to warn you. Warn me? Of what? nervous agitated restless martin roger had once more gone back to his seat his hands were trembling as he held them up mechanically to the blaze and his face was the colour of lead in contrast with his restlessness chauvelin appeared the more calm and bland why should you wish to warn me asked the other querulously but with an attempt at his former overbearing manner what are my affairs to you what do you know about them oh nothing nothing citizen martin roger replied chauvelin pleasantly i was only indulging the fancy i spoke to you about just now of putting two and two together in order to make four the chartering of a smuggler's craft aristos on board her her ostensible destination holland her real objective la curacique la curacique is now the port for nina and we don't bring aristos into nina these days for the object of providing them with a feather bed and a competence what and retorted martin roger quietly if your surmises are correct citizen chauvelin what then oh nothing replied the other indifferently only take care citizen that is all take care of what of the man who brought me chauvelin to ruin and disgrace oh i have heard of that legend before now said martin roger with a contemptuous shrug of the shoulders the man they call the scarlet pimpernel you mean why yes what have i to do with him i don't know 
but remember that i myself have twice been after that man here in england that twice he slipped through my fingers when i thought i held him so tightly that he could not possibly escape and that twice in consequence i was brought to humiliation and to shame i am a marked man now the guillotine will soon claim me for her future use your affairs citizen are no concern of mine but i have marked that scarlet pimpernel for mine own i won't have any blunderings on your part give him yet another triumph over us all once more martin roger swore one of his favorite oaths by satan and all his brood man he cried in a passion of fury have done with this interference have done i say i have nothing to do i tell you with your satan garlet pimpernel my concern is with with the duc de kernogan broke in chauvelin calmly and with his daughter i know that well enough you want to be even with them over the murder of your father i know that too all that is your affair but beware i tell you to begin with the secrecy of your identity is absolutely essential to the success of your plan what of course it is but but nevertheless your identity is known to the most astute the keenest enemy of the republic impossible asserted martin roger hotly the duc de kernogan bah he never had the slightest suspicion of me think you his high and mightiness in those far-off days ever looked twice at a village lad so that he would know him again four years later i came into this country as an emigre stowed away in a smuggler's ship like a bundle of contraband goods i have papers to prove that my name is martin roger and that i am a banker from brest the worthy bishop of brest denounced to the committee of public safety for treason against the republic was given his life and a safe conduct into spain on the condition that he gave me martin roger letters of personal introduction to various high-born emigres in holland in germany and in england armed with these i am invulnerable i have been presented to his royal highness the regent and to the elite of english society in bath i am the friend of monsieur le duc de kernogan now and the accredited suitor for his daughter's hand his daughter broke in chauvelin with a sneer and his pale keen eyes had in them a spark of malicious mockery martin roger made no immediate retort to the sneer a curious hot flush had spread over his forehead and his ears leaving his cheeks wan and livid what about the daughter reiterated chauvelin ivan de kernogan has never seen pierre adet the miller's son replied the other curtly she is now the affianced wife of martin roger the millionaire banker of brest to-night i shall persuade monsieur le duc to allow my marriage with his daughter to take place within the week i shall plead pressing business in holland and my desire that my wife shall accompany me thither the duke will consent and yvonne de kernogan will not be consulted the day after my wedding i shall be on board the hollandia with my wife and father-in-law and together we will be on our way to nina where carrier will deal with them both you are quite satisfied that this plan of yours is known to no one that no one at the present moment is aware of the fact that pierre adet the miller's son and martin roger banker of brest are one and the same quite satisfied replied martin roger emphatically very well then let me tell you this citizen rejoined chauvelin slowly and deliberately that in spite of what you say i am as convinced as that i am here alive that your real identity will be known if it is not known already 
to a gentleman who is at this present moment in Bath, and who is known to you, to me, and to the whole of France as the Scarlet Pimpernel. Martin Roget laughed and shrugged his shoulders. Impossible, he retorted. Pierre Adet no longer exists. He never existed, much. Anyhow, he ceased to be on that stormy day in September 1789. Unless your pet enemy is a wizard, he cannot know. There is nothing that my pet enemy, as you call him, cannot ferret out if he has a mind to. Beware of him, citizen Martin Roget. Beware, I tell you. How can I, laughed the other contemptuously, if I don't know who he is? If you did, retorted Chauvelin, it wouldn't help you much. But beware of every man you don't know. Beware of every stranger you meet. Trust no one. Above all, follow no one. He is there where you least expect him under a disguise you would scarcely dream of. Tell me who he is then, since you know him, so that I may duly beware of him. No, rejoined Chauvelin, with the same slow deliberation. I will not tell you who he is. Knowledge in this case would be a very dangerous thing. Dangerous? To whom? To yourself, probably. To me and to the Republic, most undoubtedly. No, I will not tell you who the Scarlet Pimpernel is. But take my advice, citizen Martin Roget, he added emphatically. Go back to Paris or to Ninas and strive there to serve your country rather than run your head into a noose by meddling with things here in England and running after your own schemes of revenge. My own schemes of revenge, exclaimed Martin Roget with a hoarse cry that was like a snarl. It seemed as if he wanted to say something more, but that the words choked him even before they reached his lips. The hot flush died down from his forehead, and his face was once more the color of lead. He took up a log from the corner of the hearth and threw it with a savage, defiant gesture into the fire. Somewhere in the house a clock struck nine. Part five. Martin Roget waited until the last echo of the gong had died away. Then he said very slowly and very quietly, forego my own schemes of revenge can you even remotely guess citizen chauvelin what it would mean to a man of my temperament and my calibre to give up that for which i have toiled and striven for the past four years think of what i was on that day when a conglomeration of adverse circumstances turned our proposed expedition against the chateau de kernogan into a disaster for our village lads and a triumph for the duke I was knocked down and crushed all but to death by the wheels of Mademoiselle de Kerrigan's coach. I managed to crawl in the mud and the cold and the rain on my hands and knees, hurt, bleeding, half-dead, as far as the presbytery of Verteau, where the cura kept me hidden at risk of his own life for two days until I was able to crawl further away out of sight. The cura did not know, I did not know then of the devilish revenge which the Duke de Kernogan meant to wreak against my father. The news reached me when it was all over, and I had worked my way to Paris with the few sous in my pocket which that good cure had given me, earning bed and bread as I went along. I was an ignorant lout when I arrived in Paris. I had been one of the C. Devant Kernogan's laborers. His chattel, what? Little better or somewhat worse off than a slave. There I heard that my father had been foully murdered, hung for a crime which I was supposed to have committed, for which I had not even been tried. Then the change in me began. For four years I starved in a garret, toiling like a galley-slave with my hands and muscles by day, and at my books by night. And what am I now? 
I have worked at books, at philosophy, at science. I am a man of education. I can talk and discuss with the best of those blanked aristos who flaunt their caprices and their mincing manners in the face of the outraged democracy of two continents. I speak English almost like a native, and Danish and German too. I can quote English poets and criticize Monsieur de Voltaire. I am an aristo, what? For this I have worked, citizen Chauvelin, day and night. Oh, those nights! How I slaved to make myself what I now am, and all for the one object, the sole object without which existence would have been absolutely unendurable. That object guided me, helped me to bear and to toil. It cheered and comforted me. To be even one day with the Duc de Kernogan and with his daughter, to be their master, to hold them at my mercy, to destroy or pardon as I choose, to be the arbiter of their fate. I have worked for four years. Now my goal is in sight, and you talk glibly of foregoing my own schemes of revenge. Believe me, citizen Chauvelin, he concluded, it would be easier for me to hold my right hand into those flames until it hath burned to a cinder than to forego the hope of that revenge which has eaten into my soul. It would hurt much less. He had spoken thus at great length, but with extraordinary restraint. Never once did he raise his voice or indulge in gesture. He spoke in even, monotonous tones, like one who is reciting a lesson, and he sat straight in front of the fire, his elbow on his knee, his chin resting in his hand, and his eyes fixed upon the flames. Chauvelin had listened in perfect silence. The scorn, the resentful anger, the ill-concealed envy of the fallen man for the successful upstart had died out of his glance. Martin Roget's story, the intensity of feeling betrayed in that absolute outward calm, had caused a chord of sympathy to vibrate in the other's atrophied heart. How well he understood that vibrant passion of hate, that longing to exact an eye for an eye, an outrage for an outrage. Was not his own life given over now to just such a longing? A mad, aching desire to be even once with that hated enemy, that maddening, mocking, elusive Scarlet Pimpernel, who had fooled and baffled him so often. Part Six some few moments had gone by since Martin Roget's harsh, monotonous voice had ceased to echo through the low, raftered room. Silence had fallen between the two men. There was indeed nothing more to say. The one had unburthened his overfull heart, and the other had understood. They were of a truth made to understand one another, and the silence between them betokened sympathy. Around them all was still, the stillness of a mist-laden night. In the house no one stirred the shutter even had ceased to creak. Only the crackling of the wood fire broke that silence which soon became oppressive. Martin Roget was the first to rouse himself from this trance-like state, wherein memory was holding such ruthless sway. He brought his hands sharply down on his knees, turned to look for a moment on his companion, gave a short laugh, and finally rose, saying briskly the while, And now, citizen, I shall have to bid you adieu, and make my way back to Bath. The nags have had the rest they needed, and I cannot spend the night here. He went to the door, and opening it, called aloud, Hello there! The same woman who had waited on him on his arrival came slowly down the stairs in response. The man with the horses, commanded Martin Roget peremptorily, tell him I'll be ready in two minutes. He returned to the room and proceeded to struggle into his heavy coat, Chauvelin, as before, making no attempt to help him. 
He sat once more huddled up in the ingle nook hugging his elbows with his thin white hands. There was a smile, half scornful but not wholly dissatisfied, around his bloodless lips. When Martin Roget was ready to go he called out quietly after him. The Hollandia, remember, at Portishead on the last day of the month. Captain K-U-Y-P-E-R. Quite right, replied Martin Roget, laconically. I'm not likely to forget. Then he picked up his hat and riding whip and went out. Part 7 Outside in the porch he found the woman bending over the recumbent figure of his guide. He be asleep, Mounser, she said placidly. Fast asleep, I do believe. Asleep, cried Martin Roget roughly. We'll soon see about waking him up. He gave the man a violent kick with the toe of his boot. The man groaned, stretched himself, turned over and rubbed his eyes. The light of the swinging lanthorn showed him the wrathful face of his employer. He struggled to his feet very quickly after that. "'Stir yourself, man!' cried Martin Roget savagely, as he gripped the fellow by the shoulder and gave him a vigorous shaking. "'Bring the horses along now, and don't keep me waiting, or there'll be trouble.' "'All right, Monsieur, all right,' muttered the man placidly, as he shook himself free from the uncomfortable clutch on his shoulder and leisurely made his way out of the porch. "'Haven't you got a boy or a man who can give that lout a hand with those sacre horses?' queried Martin Roget impatiently. "'He hardly knows a horse's head from its tail.' "'No, sir, I have no one to-night,' replied the woman gently. "'My man and my son, they be gone down to Watchlet, to elp with the cargo and the pack horses. "'They won't be here neither till after midnight.' "'But,' she added more cheerfully, "'I can straighten a saddle if you want it.' "'That's all right, then, but—' He paused suddenly, for a loud cry of, "'Allo! Well, I'm—' rang through the night from the direction of the rear of the house. The cry expressed both surprise and dismay. "'What the blank is it?' called Martin Roget, loudly in response. "'The oarses! What about them?' To this there was no reply, and with a savage oath and calling to the woman to show him the way, Martin Roget ran out in the direction whence had come the cry of dismay. He fell straight into the arms of his guide, who promptly set up another cry, more dismal, more expressive of bewilderment than the first. "'They be gone!' he shouted excitedly. "'Who have gone?' queried the Frenchman. "'The oarses!' "'The horses? What in blank do you mean?' "'The oarses have gone, Monsieur. There was no door to the stables, and they be gone.' "'You're a fool!' growled Martin Roget, who of a truth had not taken in as yet the full significance of the man's jerky sentences. Horses don't walk out of the stables like that. They can't have done if you tied them up properly. I didn't tie them up, protested the man. I didn't know how to tie the beastly nags up, and there was no one to help me. I didn't think they'd walk out like that. Well, if they're gone, you'll have to go and get them back somehow, that's all, said Martin Roget whose temper by now was beyond his control, and who was quite ready to give the lout a furious thrashing. "'Get them back, Monsieur,' wailed the man. "'How can I? In the dark, too. Besides, if I did come nose to nose with them, I shouldn't know how to get em. Would you, Monsieur?' he added with bland impertinence. "'I shall know how to lay you out, you satan idiot,' growled Martin Roget, "'if I have to spend the night in this hole.' He strode on in the darkness in the direction where a little glimmer of light showed the entrance to a wide barn which obviously was used as a rough stabling. He stumbled through a yard and over a miscellaneous lot of rubbish. 
It was hardly possible to see one's hands before one's eyes in the darkness and the fog. The woman followed him, offering consolation in the shape of a seat in the coffee-room whereon to pass the night, for indeed she had no bed to spare, and the man from Shellwood brought up the rear, still ejaculating cries of astonishment rather than distress. "'You are that careless, man,' the woman admonished him placidly, "'and I give you a lanthorn and all for to look after your horses properly. "'But you didn't give me an ant for tie them up in their stalls "'and give em their feed, drat em. "'I ate horses and all to do with em. "'Didn't you give em the feed I gave you for em then?' "'No, I didn't. "'Think you I'd go into one of them narrow stalls "'and get kicked for my pains?' then they was hungry poor things she concluded and went out after the a what's just outside i don't know ow you'll ever get em back in this fog there was indeed no doubt that the nags had made their way out of the stables in that irresponsible fashion peculiar to animals and that they had gone astray in the dark there certainly was no sound in the night to denote their presence anywhere near we'll get em all right in the morning remarked the woman with her exasperating placidity "'Tomorrow morning!' exclaimed Martin Roget, in a passion of fury. "'And what the blank am I going to do in the meantime?' The woman reiterated her offers of a seat by the fire in the coffee-room. "'The men won't mind Caesar,' she said. "'Eeps of em are Frenchies like yourself, and I'll tell them you ain't a spyin' on em. "'It's no more than five mile to Chelwood,' said the man blandly, "'and maybe you get a better shake down there.' a five-mile tramp growled martin roget whose wrath seemed to have spent itself before the hopelessness of his situation in this fog and gloom and knee-deep in mud there'll be a sovereign for you woman he said curtly if you can give me a clean bed for the night the woman hesitated for a second or two well a sovereign is tempting sir she said at last you shall have my son's bed i know he'd rather have the sovereign if he was ever so tired this way sir she added as she once more turned toward the house mind them ertles there and where am i goin to sleep called the man from chelwood after the two retreating figures i'll look after the man for you sir said the woman for a matter of a shillin he can sleep in the coffee-room and i'll give him his breakfast too not one farthing will i pay for the idiot retorted martin roget savagely let him look after himself he had once more reached the porch without another word and not heeding the protests and curses of the unfortunate man whom he had left standing shelterless in the middle of the yard he pushed open the front door of the house and once more found himself in the passage outside the coffee-room but the woman had turned back a little before she followed her guest into the house and she called out to the man in the darkness you may sleep in any of them outhouses and welcome and sure there'll be a bit of forage for ye in the morning think ye i'll stop came in a furious growl out of the gloom and conduct that blank frog-eater back to chelwood no fear five miles ain't nothin to me and he can keep the miserable shillin he'd have give me for my pains let im get his horses back itself and get to chelwood as best he can i'm off and you can tell him so from me it'll make him sleep all the better i reckon the woman was obviously not of a disposition that would ever argue a matter of this sort out she had done her best she reckoned both for master and man and if they chose to quarrel between themselves that was their business and not hers so she quietly went into the house again barred and bolted the door and finding the stranger still waiting for her in the passage she conducted him to a tiny room on the floor above 
"My son's room, Mounzeer," she said. "I 'ope as 'ow you'll be comfortable." "It will do all right," assented Martin Roget. "Is the Captain sleeping in the house to night?" he added as with an afterthought. "Only in the coffee room, Mounzeer. I couldn't give him a bed. The Captain will be leaving with the pack 'orzes a couple of hours before dawn. Shall I tell 'im you be 'ere?" "No, no," he replied promptly, "don't tell him anything. I don't want to see him again. And he'll be gone before I'm awake, I reckon." "That 'e will, zir, most like. Good night, zir." "Good night. And, mind, that lout gets the two horses back again for my use in the morning. I shall have to make my way to Chelwood as early as may be." "Ay, ay, zir," assented the woman placidly. It were no use, she thought, to upset the Mounzeer's temper once more by telling him that his guide had decamped. Time enough in the morning, when she would be less busy. "'And my John can see him as far as Chelwood,' she thought to herself as she finally closed the door on the stranger and made her way slowly down the creaking stairs. End of chapter 2 Recording by Dion Gines, Salt Lake City, Utah